0: This is Infants on Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with humor. We are the core.
1: After has let you down.
0: Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Osland and this is part three of our deep dive smackdown review of Peter Bogosian's A Manual for Creating Atheists. Now today, I am joined once again by one of our recent listener essay winners, Delaney Darko, as well as our very own brother, Jake, and making his triumphant return to Infants on Thrones, Brady Bloom, who was the blind kid from Dumb and Dumber.
1: Pretty bird. Yeah, can you say pretty bird? Yes, pretty
2: bird.
0: As well as the voice of Christopher Robin and a bunch of Winnie the Pooh movies.
2: Pooh, there's something I have to tell you. It's something
3: nice,
0: and can also be heard on Episodes 175 and 264 of Infants on Thrones. Today we look at Peter Boghossian's methodology, the Socratic method, and we walk through three case studies where Boghossian attempted to talk three different people out of their faith. Now we recorded this live in front of a small audience and have a few Patreon supporters chime in on this one as well, so let's get right to it especially since Jake wasn't exactly sure quite what he was getting himself into on this one. Here we go. Forever oh, and ever is a very long time. How's this? Yeah. There we go. Okay, great, great, great. So, um to t- I mean to be perfectly honest, I'm I'm not even totally sure what this is. <laughs> <laughs> like a i manual, just uh, <laughs> a manual for creating atheists yeah so so did, did you hear i mean we started the conversation a couple of weeks ago um there there was a a listener who emailed us and said um it sounds like a lot of the infants have become moral relativists and oh yeah what's, i what's remember this that? Yeah. yeah and he's like i've just read this book by peter bogosian and called a manual for creating atheists, and in it he attacks uh, moral relativism. And I'd like you guys to do a podcast on it. And I thought that sounds like an interesting book uh, just by itself. A, a, a previous listener had emailed me about um, do like creating some kind of missionary discussions, f- like for deconverting people of Mormonism, you know, so, it's so like when this other listener brings me this thing, a manual for creating atheists, I'm like, Oh cool. The work's already been done. I don't have to do that. We can just like read this book and smack it down. So tonight is the, the third time uh, that we're going into this, a manual for creating atheists. So what I've done is I've prepared some clips ahead of time. I think there's five or six clips. Some of them are, are pretty long tonight. Um, and w- I'll just play them. We'll all listen to them together And then comment on them afterwards. And during the clip, if you want me to pause it, just say, hey, hey, hang on a second, pause it. And then we'll have a conversation uh, around what he's talking about. So it's clips from the audio book instead of like Smackdown style where we're reading it down word for word got it got it. So, got it so brady why don't why don't you introduce yourself and i know you've you've been on infants on thrones before randy and i interviewed you several years ago um i've used your 1000000000 four c outro quite a bit because i
1: <laughs> i like it pretty bird pretty bird hey this is 1000000000 four c from rhode island yes that's right the blind kid from dumb and dumber and now dumb and dumber two two yes a pseudo celebrity mormon Infants on Thrones has helped me come to grips with the tragedy that I've seen, well, heard about at least, when learning that the thing that mattered most to me ended up being dead all along. I mean, Petey didn't even have a head. I like it.
0: Um, But uh, yeah, maybe let people know who you are and um, anything else you might want to let them know.
4: Yeah, awesome. Um, I'm Brady Bloom. I'm happy to be back on Infants right now. It's it's been interesting. I've listened back, like, six months ago, I listened back to our, our episode. Yeah. And it's like, oh, man, what a, like, time stamp of where I was <laughs> at a certain time. And so much can change. And when was it, like, four years ago? Oh, my gosh. Probably yeah. something like that. Let's just go with four. Three and a half or four years, yeah. yeah. So a lot, a lot has happened since then. Um, my wife and I stopped attending church after that. And so... Um, we stayed in for about a year and a half and tried to like find a middle ground and didn't really find it uplifting anymore for ourselves. And so we stopped going to church two years ago, two and a half years ago. And um, since then, I've, man, I've grown a ton as a person. Like, well, I've technically lost like 40 pounds, but <laughs> I lost 40 pounds. So I shrunk as a person physically, but then yeah. like, mentally and emotionally, I've grown a lot and just learned a lot too. I've, I've gotten a lot into um, reading about Eastern philosophy and ideas and practicing meditation and yoga and things. And it's, it's brought me to a good place. I feel like, so I'm happy to be here and happy to discuss the idea of belief and uh, like listening through these things. That's really what stood out to me too is the differences in, in that word and the definitions
0: of that. Cool. So, so, um, Hey Richard, I'm going to put you on mute there, buddy. Um, <clears throat> Last last week, uh, it, it was Delaney and Tom and I, and I thought it was a pretty pretty good conversation. One of the things we did, maybe towards the the middle or the end, or, or maybe this was in the first discussion, I don't remember, but kind of identified where we are on the whole atheist uh, spectrum. Um, so since since you're new to the panel now, Brady, um, where, where do you where do you fall on the atheist, agnostic, deist? Deist, deist, deist. I'm saying it multiple times for Randy's sake. Deist. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I swung from
4: the extreme believing side of Mormonism and fully bought into that. I pendulum swung the opposite direction to agnostic atheist, mm-hmm. and I landed there for quite some time, and then actually applying critical thinking into, okay, like what aversion I feel towards even the word God and different things like that through critical thinking and working through those things. I've come back to, I'm kind of a deist as well, I would say, mm. but it's it's more of an agnostic deist because I definitely don't believe in like a guy. Like, like an anthropomorphized God. God? Yeah, not not in any way. So like the term God itself is just I think it's such a vague term that can mean so many things to so many different people that I, I kind of avoid using that word even. So I don't know most things, but there are a few things that I feel pretty strongly
3: about. Okay. Belief-wise. All right.
0: Okay. Well, let's, let's move to the, the first clip. It's a really short
3: one. Certainty is an enemy of truth. Examination and re-examination are allies of truth. All right.
0: Certainty is an enemy of truth. And examination and re examination are allies of truth. Does that sound right? Uh, I mean, uh, sure, sure, to, to a certain extent. But at some point, like, you can't re examine your entire worldview constantly and try and, like, bootstrap your way into, like, truth. I mean, at some point, you have to make some shortcuts. So I, I, I don't know if, it, I mean, to say, like, that, that um, certainty is the enemy of truth. Like what kind of certainty, like some sort of theoretical, philosophical certainty of like, I would, uh, or, or is being certain enough to act certain an enemy of truth as well? Like, I I don't, I don't understand how you don't, that just seems like some sort of thing that people say to try to get other people to stop believing what they're believing. You know, I think, I think there is a word for it. I think we, we talked about it last week. It's a deepity. (laughs) <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to me that is a huge deepity yeah. saying that certainty is the enemy of the truth now go and attack those that have certainty certain <laughs> of faith because there are enemies then and, and truth is what we're you know like so i i don't like are you certain about the laws of gravity yeah Yeah. Does that make make your, does that certainty make you an enemy to the truth about gravity? You know, I mean, it's just like,
4: well, I think when you think about certainty in the, in the realm of beliefs though, right. Not as far as like gravitational laws and things that are physically proven in that way, but in, in the realm of the areas that you can't know, right. Like for example, God itself, God, people say that they, they know God exists. Yeah. But having certainty of that leaves you unopen to ever questioning, right? I think the certainty to me is the key there. And for me going through my faith crisis was the first time I really allowed myself to question my certainty that I had in the church. Yeah. And that has been a huge blessing in my life to get rid of certainty and to embrace the idea of I don't know when I yeah. was so familiar with always saying I know. This. Right. I know this is true. And instead of that saying, I don't know because my beliefs are made up. They're mine. And that's about all I can say to their validity in that way. I can show you why I believe certain things, but that's about it, right? So I, I would agree with the statement because of that term certainty. Um, to me, that's ideological thinking. And you think that you're the one that's right and everyone else is wrong. And I think that that get backs you into a corner and keeps you from learning.
5: Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I I agree with that. Uh, Peter, do you want to chime in here?
5: Uh, well, I have so many thoughts. I, I just sent you a chat. I'm just not sure from an etiquette perspective, like we're not
0: all No, on. no, yeah. yeah right. No, no, I appreciate that. Go ahead.
5: Um, the gra- Funny that you brought up gravity because that's the the notes that I had made were kind of specifically about that. When I, when I looked at this, I ran it through the deepity lens and I'm like, mm, I think he's actually trying to say something else. And I looked at it more like a checklist. Okay. When you check something off a list, you, you stop thinking about it. You don't put any more effort towards pursuing that thing because it's because it's done. And you go off and you do because everybody has lots of other things to do with their day. So what I think he's saying is that if, we're, if we find that we're certain about anything, we're mentally checking it off a list and we're not pursuing it. So if we take gravity as an example, somebody could say, well, I understand gravity. I accept gravity. If I pick this thing up and I drop it, I know what's going to happen. I can reasonably predict what the outcome is going to be. But if everybody had that same approach, we wouldn't have learned about gra- uh, black holes. We wouldn't have learned about gravitational waves and research would not likely have been done as deeply in those fields as it would have but people were uncertain about those things they they knew something but they didn't think they knew everything and so they thought there's more here to learn so let's keep going
0: Hmm.
5: so so yeah i I appreciate that thanks thanks peter I, i
0: I guess where this is stemming from for me is when you go into a dialogue with somebody, I don't, I don't like the idea of thinking that they're an enemy or that because they have certainty and I don't have certainty that I'm somehow above them and I'm going to bring them to a place where they need to go, which is where I am. And, you know, it's, it's kind of the whole issue I've had with this since we first started talking about it. it. It, it harkens me back to my days as a missionary and I just don't want to be a missionary for that, and I don't, I don't want to accept these kind of platitudes and deepities and things like that. That's rah rah rah. Let's get out there in the street and rid the world of the faith virus. Um, bec- I'm just sensitive to that kind of approach, and if I'm going to be skeptical, I want to be skeptical about those things too. So
4: we'll yeah. see. And at the same time, though, see, avoiding ideology, I think is is the key to what he's talking about there. And I think that's also one of, one of the failures of the book too, is that I feel it goes a little too ideological in the opposite direction Mm -hmm. of faith, not being possible, not being something valid. Right. Yeah. I I think it moves too far into an ideological approach on that end. Um, But for certain people that really believe strongly that there is no God, that they want to be able to help other people because they've been helped in the past, whether it was from their own reasoning or from someone introducing them and helping them to like, take these steps of critical thinking. I like, I'm not all about let's all form together as atheists and rid the world of religion and belief. I think that's very far in the, in one direction that doesn't need to go that far, but for people that want to help other people and are atheists, like, I think this can be a really useful tool and absolutely to ask yeah. some kind of questions and helping people to really dig into their beliefs more, right? Which no, that totally should agree. happen more. Totally Everyone should dig into their beliefs. I think that is, is something that I take from this is really thinking hard and long about what you believe and why you believe it and making sure you believe it because you do not because anyone else told you to not because of making someone else upset or making or making someone else's life harder because you believe differently. Right.
1: Yeah.
3: Cool. All right. Let's move on to the next clip. We have an inborn curiosity about people, natural phenomena in our lives. Children in particular desire to know. Faith taints or at worst removes our curiosity about the world, what we should value and what type of life we should lead. Faith replaces wonder with epistemological arrogance disguised as false humility. Faith immutably alters the starting conditions for inquiry by uprooting a hunger to know and sowing a warrantless confidence. Among the goals of the street epistemologist are to instill a self-consciousness of ignorance, a determination to challenge foundational beliefs, a relentless hunger for truth, and a desire to know. Wonder, curiosity, honest self-reflection, sincerity, and the desire to know are a solid basis for a life worth living. The street epistemologist seeks to help others reclaim their curiosity and their sense of wonder, both of which were robbed by faith.
0: Do, do, do you agree with the claim that faith robs people of their curiosity?
2: I don't agree with that at all. I think humans are naturally curious whether they're faithful or not. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I agree with, um, I think it was Peter said that his, the the failings, or maybe it was Brady, sorry. The faith or the failings of this book is, it's just a little too pretentious for me. And um, there's stuff that I like in here that I agree with. But then when I hear him on the audio clip, mm-hmm. It reminds me of the comic guy from The Simpsons.
3: Worst episode ever. Worst half hour of television Worst reading ever. And
0: (laughs) (laughs) It does sound like the comic guy from The Simpsons. I don't know
2: why, but I just like... I'm
0: Troy McClure, right? No, (laughs) no, no, it's like uh, the comic... Oh, it sounds like the comic book guy. Who, Who... has a, a master's degree in folklore from Indiana University, by the way. See? <laughs> Something that he and I share in common. I do one. not
2: need it. I've got a master's degree in folklore and mythology. Excuse me? I don't know. Well, you know, like disabusing others of warrantless cer- certainty and reinstilling their sense of wonder and their desire to know is a profound contribution to life worth living. Everybody's life is worth living, you know, yeah. not yeah. – I don't know. It's too much us versus them. That that's happens.
0: right. Yes. It's the us versus them stuff that I don't like. Yeah.
2: But There's- I still agree with most things in here. I just have a problem assuming that that's best for everybody.
5: The running theme that I, that I heard kind of the same thing, Delaney is two things. One, he ran off a list of things that the, the street epistemologist wants. And one thing he did not say was empathy. He's mm-hmm. looking at this from a really, really academic model and he he's pushing the theory and the practice but he's not taking into account the emotional impact of the kinds of things he's trying to do so in the mormon context he doesn't understand how terrifying and painful cognitive dissonance is so if he makes a dent in somebody he doesn't make space for how their reaction needs to be reacted to the The way he speaks, it sounds not just condescending, but I'm almost like the word codependent keeps popping up because he's he's getting validation for his own methods and his own views by essentially putting tick marks on how many people he can he can convert. How Mm -hmm. many wins can he get? So it's not really about helping other people. It's about I'm right. I'm I'm doing good things. I feel better. And it doesn't matter the impact that I'm making on these people as long as they change their minds. And and I tried to I tried to take that out of it and look at this in the context of what would it be like for him to have a conversation with somebody that he really emotionally cares about and would the techniques work in there and i 've got to try that some more because you 're right I think there 's good stuff in here, but the mm-hmm. delivery is just so harsh
0: have, have you listened to the audiobook or just the clips that the clips that i provided so okay yeah if if you listen to the audiobook and I think especially if you read it instead of listening to his voice it 's a different experience and uh, th- there are clips that i haven 't included in here I, I think I think the next one might have some of these clips in here that touch on empathy a little bit more than than what you 've heard so far, Peter. Um, but he he do, he does say like stay away from facts, don't debate facts and don't don't debate like religion, focus on faith as a source of epistemology or, or a uh, style of epistemology uh, focus on faith as the way of knowing that you've come to know what it is that you think that you know um, and he and when he's talking about staying away from these other things, he says it because people have so much identity drawn towards their their faith and their beliefs and their religion that, that you want to be as delicate as possible. So he says those things, but then when you hear him talk, he does it in such a like badass, you know, like we're uh, taking names and whatever, you know, that, that, that sort of thing that it, it is that that part's off putting and it, you know, like Delaney says, it does make it sound very us versus them which is quite distasteful to me.
4: Yeah, I think for me, the style and delivery of it is a a turnoff on that. But I do want to investigate the claim that he makes here because there's a lot that I agree with in, in what he says. And thinking back and looking at how I was before, if I wondered anything about the universe or about the world and the way things worked, what would I do before? I would check like, old prophets and what they said about this. And I, I would like find the answer that the right. church had given on this is what it was. That was my answer. My wondering stopped. Right. Yeah. Um, at that point. And so I really do feel that my curiosity and my wonder has just spiked and peaked mm-hmm. as I've left Interesting. the church because I'm allowed to question everything. I'm allowed to think about anything I want. And I'm allowed to believe whatever I want to believe. Right. And so now it's way more fun to explore belief. It's way more fun to think about why things are the way they are and how I can live well within that too. Right. So I've come back, but I guess I'll leave that there, but then I'll say something else just on faith later too. I don't agree with his definition of what faith is.
0: And I think that's a core. Did, did you listen to the, the, he gave two definitions, um, that we talked about last week. Um, one is, well, the one that he hammered most you know, pretending to know, know something that you don't know that that that's one definition of faith. And then the other one is belief without evidence or, or which I think is a stronger definition is belief in spite of contradicting evidence. Um, but, but, but see, both of those may, treat faith, the word faith, faith is really just a
4: word. It's just a symbol and it means different things to different people. Sure. And I think the way that he paints faith and, and his definition of it is very condescending mm-hmm. in, in that way. Either one of those definitions I see as condescending because it's basically in order to have faith, you have to be stupid is, is what anyone or that's what I hear.
0: in that, that That's read, the takeaway. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
4: Where really like for me, the biggest act of faith that I've ever taken was telling my parents and my wife's parents that we did not believe the church was true anymore. It was the scariest thing I've ever done. I had no clue what was going to happen. I had no clue how they were going to react. Like leaving the church is the biggest leap of faith I've ever taken because mm-hmm. I. it was pretty laid out for me. It was easy to follow before. And now it's just like darkness and abyss. So every step is like, what's, what do I do? What do I believe? What do I think? It's yeah. reexamining everything. So that to me is faith. And, and I think he's talking more about like belief or unquestioned belief too, right? Unexamined belief. It's kind of how I take.
0: Yeah. So, so the, the next clip is, is a little bit longer and he goes through, um, the, the, he, he he talks about the Socratic method. He talks about Socrates quite a bit that that we're kind of glossing over a little bit, but the Socratic method that he's talking about is basically this process of asking a question, listening sincerely to the answer, re-engaging, asking other questions about that answer, listening to that, questioning, you know, constant questioning, and so he's he's going to have this framework of like five different points that then he uses for these case studies and says, oh, I'm starting with with wonder, and then I'm going to a hypothesis, and here's what I was doing at different stages in the conversation. So, so this is these are the tools that he's setting up for how to have a conversation with someone as a street epistemologist. And I was going to say this at the beginning. I forgot to say this at the beginning. There were some people on Facebook who pointed out that I've been pronouncing uh, his last name with an R that I keep calling it like Borgosian. And I think that's like a, a subliminal Star Trek. I think he's trying to turn everybody into the Borg, like this atheist Borg. So I've been calling him Borgosian. It's, it's Bugosian. So thank you, Facebook people. I'll say it right now. Bugosian. <laughs> All right. Here's the, here's the next clip.
3: These conversations oh. force people to substantively evaluate and in many cases ultimately change their beliefs. And this was all accomplished merely by asking a question, listening to the answer, then asking another question, listening to that answer, etc. The Socratic method has five stages. 1. Wonder. 2. Hypothesis. 3. Elinkus. 4. Accepting or revising the hypothesis. 5. Acting accordingly. Stage one, wonder. The Socratic method begins in wonder. Someone wonders something. What is justice? Or is there intelligent life on other planets? Or does karma govern the cycle of cause and effect? Etc. Stage two, hypothesis. Hypotheses are speculative responses to questions posed in stage one. They're tentative answers to the object of wonder. 3. Elinkus In the Elinkus, the Socratic facilitator generates one or more ways that the hypothesis could be false. That is, what conditions could be in place that would make the hypothesis untrue? Stage 4. Accept or revise hypothesis. In stage 4. The hypothesis is either accepted as provisionally true or it's rejected. If it's accepted as true, then this ends the Olympus and immediately begins stage 5. If it's rejected, then another hypothesis is given and the Olympus begins again. It's vital to reiterate that if the hypothesis stands, this does not mean one has found eternal truth. This simply means the hypothesis is accepted as provisionally true. Stage 5. Act accordingly. As a consequence of the Socratic method, one would ideally act upon the results of one's inquiry. Acting could be anything from changing one's beliefs to taking specific action. Stage 5 has less to do with the implementation of the method and more to do with the consequences of one's examination. When administering Socratic treatments, keep the following in mind. Be aware of the stages of the method. Don't transition from one stage to another stage until you've exhausted everything you need to do in that particular stage. Don't rush. When appropriate, incorporate strategies noted in Chapter 4. Be attentive to context. Don't develop adversarial relationships or negative tones. Roll with it. Divorce belief from morality. Focus on epistemology and not metaphysics. Target faith, not religion, and model the behavior you want the subject to emulate. Develop a safe space for discussion, almost a camaraderie.
0: Does this guy sound like a pickup artist to anybody else? A pickup (laughs) artist? Like, I feel like it sounds like a pickup artist. like, you know, when you go to the club, the ladies (laughs) want to know if you're thinking about them. So first up, uh, give him a compliment. I don't know. Like, I, no, no, I no, keep going. I'm loving this. What's the I second want more of this, Jake. I need to know. Give him a compliment. It's important that you emulate the behavior that you want your partner to, to reciprocate. <laughs> Stage two. Don't don't go too far on the complicate on, on the compliment. Yeah, I, I don't. don't know. I, th- I think we could them, do that. Yeah, you don't want them getting out of control. Yeah, think they, they could do better than you. <laughs> <laughs> now, see, now you sound like uh, uh, the, the Fox guy in uh, Guardians of the Galaxy.
3: Ever since you got a little sap, you're a total D-hole.
0: You're, you're doing your um, yeah, like Bradley Cooper. Bradley Cooper. As, yeah, yeah. Exactly. that was a, that was a Bradley. Co- that was good. Good job. Thank, Thank you. Oh, I was. liked it. I it like I it's rocket raccoon rocket fox comment. rocket raccoon yeah <laughs> Get it right okay well I didn't really have anything more substantive to say than, than no but that. I think I think you're like it's my it, it it doesn't it remind you of when you were reading your missionary discussions and it's like pause right now to ask if they can feel the I felt spirit. like.
4: I felt like they should distribute this for missionaries to listen to during district meetings together or something. Like, yeah. It reminded me of a district meeting. It also totally brought me back to my first year selling security systems door yes, like, yes. to door. Like, yes, Ziegler on audiobook. <laughs> like, it's very, like, do this, then this, and remember to make it flow and make it natural. Don't, yeah. Very salesy, which
0: is okay. It is. Us, it's manual the for the Mormon Indian. church
4: taught us how to sell our, how to sell its religion, you know?
0: Yeah. yeah. So. But it's very kind of how to win friends and influence people a little bit, like you know, create the. uh, I I I don't know. I just don't know. Like I I still don't understand. Like the the premise. Like so, a manual for creating atheists. Fine, that's the objective of the book. But like, what is the, like, is there a purpose beyond like just having more atheists in the world? Um, it's, feel it's like the, the, yeah. It feel like the, the the premise is that there is a, a terrible virus out there, Jake. That's called faith, and people people that have the faith virus need to be inoculated. Um, and and he uses this uh, metaphor uh, quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's when it's when people use faith as a way of gaining certainty about truth, and it just leads to nothing good. Mm. and it like you will help people by freeing them from this virus and so he's he's teaching people how to free other people from faith
2: thank you for curing me of my
3: ridiculous obsession with love do
0: you agree with that do i agree agree?
3: who who
4: are are you asking well why don't i start off and say i I think certain types of faith, yes, I do agree it is it is counterproductive it I think it keeps people from thinking critically and being able to improve their own lives and think about the way that they live their lives um, because it leads them to certainty so like in in a certain way and ideologically, yes, I think ideology, whether it 's in religion or whether it 's in politics or whether whatever system of belief you 're talking about, I think ideology is something we should fight against and that we should. Encourage more critical thinking too. So I like. I like. I think the Socratic method given here, and I was the one in the beginning that said I'm not an atheist in in my own way, but um, I, I like the Socratic method here because it's it's teaching people how to question their own assumptions. Sure. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I really wish that they had. They have mandatory philosophy classes in high school. I just. Pictured, well, I taught high school for a little bit, and this would have been so cool to to kind of know this Socratic method and put it in my lessons and just to get a good classroom discussion with those little teenage minds, you know, get them thinking deeper than just what they're fed every day from a textbook.
0: Yeah, I, I... I... I just think it's presumptuous, and and I have a strong reaction against that. I I don't disagree with what you were saying, Brady, about um, some forms of faith are very detrimental. And and I I do think there's a, a tremendous value in creating a manual for creating atheists and spelling it out this way and spelling it, you know, like shining a light on these five steps of the Socratic method. Not only to be aware of yourself, more self-reflective, but also in the conversations that you're having with other people. And, and I, I think the application of this. Th- these were a, a few other comments uh, on on Facebook that when someone's a really good street epistemologist, it's not a confrontational conversation at all. It's uh, and and in fact, maybe the the person who is receiving treatment doesn't even know that they're receiving treatment. They don't even know that they're being helped. It's just they're having a conversation with somebody who appears to be really interested in them, whether they are or not, and is asking them a lot of questions about what they're doing. And some of the questions might be a little challenging, um, but they're just, you know, so, so the, the street epistemologist is trying to insert these seeds of doubt, um, and the person may or may not be aware that that's, happening in the most successful cases. I'm not sure. I haven't finished the book. I haven't looked at a bunch of these YouTube videos that uh, show it being applied really, really well. But I think that's the end game.
4: Well, and ultimately, I mean, what this is doing, and he shows it in the examples that are coming up, he's just asking questions and following up with more questions. But it's it, it should be from a place of genuine curiosity, yeah. not just from this place of getting to this end goal that they don't believe in something. Right. But if you genuinely are curious, and I think the more we practice this on ourselves and we analyze our own thoughts and ideas, it gets easier to do that with other people too. Right. So, but it is something that you have to practice. And so like following a step steps and orders like this and, and the way he lays it out, I think is, is pretty good. Yeah. Again, to me, it's the delivery of this and I know we already touched on it, but if like, if we had a manual for atheists, that was more just like a manual for how to be a good human, right? It was empathic and, mm. and, and had more feeling involved. Empathic, in it huh?
0: You want me to bring yeah. on Chris to the psychic again? <laughs> <To> have... <laughs> empathetic. Oh, <laughs> empathetic. Yeah. Okay. Empathetic. My bad. That's and right. empathic would be awesome too. If we could, all that learn. would be so cool. Yeah. yeah a little seance. Yeah. <laughs> I mean. All right. Um, so, so these, these five steps, they're pretty clear, right? that you know I, I really like that the first one is wonder and that that part of this method is to try in the the questions that you're asking to always return it back like get it back into that place of of wonder um and then the hypothesis is why do you think things are the way that you're wondering that they are i i i elinkus, i don't know if that's like a is that a greek word that socrates actually used because I, because hearing uh, Bogosian talk about it, he also talked about it as a Q and A, and I much prefer to think of it as stage Q and A than stage Elinkus. Um But uh, any, anybody have any inside yeah, knowledge? I like, of Elinkus? I, like, I know, but I, I, did like the idea that it was like the all, everything else was like totally understandable. English. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then it was like yeah. And then the Elinkus. Elinkus Yeah. How do you spell it? I don't know. I don't know it's an audiobook. Who said that? That was me. E L E N C H U S.
2: Yeah.
0: It's right between like your um, third and fourth <laughs> birth. <birthright>. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's what Those it's really what a links, links them together. <laughs> 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 yeah. First yeah, yeah, okay. So then stage 4 is reevaluating that the the hypothesis and stage 5. <laughs> I love how he kind of circularly uh, circularly uh, defined it by acting means uh, acting on it. So really quick, a linkus because it actually is a good definition. Mm-hmm. A
4: logical refutation. It's an argument that refutes another argument by proving proving the contrary of its conclusion. Okay, so so the so so it's it's, it's an it's, argumentative it's, conversation, but it's argumentative doesn't mean angry, upset.
0: Argumentative. Yeah, you, you, you're trying to find the flaws. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So so those are the five stages and then there's three different case studies that he presents that that I'm I'm going to play the clips we can listen to them and then talk about them. Let me see. Can I up. say one more thing on the
4: Olincus idea? Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um it, it was a note that I had where he said
4: you're thinking of one or more ways that it could be false. Right. So you're coming from the assumption that what you believe may be false. And you're trying to prove that, which is something I really value compared to pre exiting the church, where all everything I would do with belief was based on the assumption to prove that it is true. And in the scientific method, like that immediately already flaws your entire experiment when you're coming from a place of wanting to Prove something to be true. You need to be proving it false instead, and and working toward that.
0: What What do you do though when you you start uh, th- this Q and A Elincus conversation and going? Okay, so you think X, but couldn't Y mean that X isn't true? You know, like when when you do that and you see somebody respond, like how how, how do you think people typically respond when you're challenging things that they believe? I think
4: keeping it in that place of wonder, right? Is is probably the way to do it. To make it seem pretty genuine that you really are wondering to Well, make it seem genuine. Well, to have it be genuine <laughs> right. is yeah. a better place to be, right? I, yeah.
5: I I think Um, think that's where the empathy part comes into this too, because one of the things that, that again is missing for him because he's not necessarily had this as his lived experience is that he, he doesn't understand what's going to happen to someone's sense of identity. If you, if you're trying to challenge their beliefs or refute if something is not true, what he, what you're really doing, particularly in the Mormon context is saying you're not true because Mm. an attack on their belief is an attack on their identity as a human being. And he doesn't, he doesn't necessarily see the impact of something that for him might be just a little minor ding in some idea that they had but it's not it's like a personal attack and doesn't necessarily say how to account or adjust for that if it happens
3: yeah yeah it's a good point all right let's go to the clip intervention one doxastic openness i had the following late night discussion with a young man why am i at a local gym about 10 minutes into our discussion, he told me Jesus Christ came into his life. He touched me. At that moment, my life was forever changed. This statement, he touched me, is the hypothesis. Sounds pretty gross. He
2: touches a it
3: is the statement I targeted for refutation. Note that at no point in this intervention do I deny the feelings he experienced. To do so would be counterproductive what I target for refutation is the source or cause of these feelings and the resultant faith it engendered. That's really interesting. Can you tell me about that? I asked this question for two reasons. Primarily, I need to make sure I understood the exact nature of the claim. I was virtually certain I did understand, but needed to be positive. It's a good idea to ask someone to repeat or restate their claim. Secondarily, I framed this in terms of a question because I wanted to make him more receptive to answering. I admitted my ignorance and asked him to help me understand. I found subjects are usually more receptive to continuing treatment when questions are framed as just that, questions. And when you show your interest in a conversation by asking follow-up questions. YM told me of his experiences, what he'd gone through in his life, and what he felt. That's really interesting. But I have a question. How do you know the thing you felt was caused by Jesus? Four points to note. 1. Use of the passive voice. If you construct your statement with the passive voice, the subject may be more likely to be open to alternative causes. 2. Because this is a question, why M can give individual responses that can then be broken down and targeted for refutation. 3. i found that questions, as opposed to statements, tend to be less threatening as people feel they have the freedom to answer as they like. 4. This question resets the Socratic conversation, beginning again in wonder. How do you know the thing you felt was caused by Jesus? I don't know. Bingo! A glimmer of doxastic openness. YM partially removes himself from the equation. The faith virus has received its first vaccination. Yeah, I don't know either. I immediately modeled the behavior of openness and uncertainty that I'm attempting to engender in the subject. I don't know is a deceptively powerful statement. It also leads the subject to think, correctly, that you don't have all the answers and that not having all the answers is okay. A pregnant pause is a very useful, non-threatening technique typically used in sales to get the results you want. So, people who deeply and genuinely feel these experiences, these religious experiences, Do you think they understand that they might not be caused by what they think they're caused by? Some probably do, some don't. This statement is a hypothesis. It seems rather obvious, and there was no point in targeting it for refutation. Also, by not targeting reasonable hypotheses at this juncture, the subject may feel he has just enough to grasp onto so he's not drowning in uncertainty. Yeah, that's probably right. But you've thought about the feelings you had not being caused by Jesus, right? No. I was somewhat surprised by this answer. I thought ego alone might have led him to answer in the affirmative. So, it is possible that the feelings you had were not experienced by Jesus? I don't know. Jackpot. He went from certainty to uncertainty. From absolute confidence to doubt from pre-contemplation to contemplation, from thinking he experienced Jesus to being unsure. This particular intervention had ended. However, I was acutely aware of the danger he would face when he returned to his faith community. I was concerned he'd be pulled back into his faith delusions by loved ones or by clergy. For the next few weeks, I made late-night visits to the gym to look for him. I wanted to administer a follow-up treatment and see how he was doing. Unfortunately, I never saw him again. I've always regretted not giving him my phone number.
0: All right. Jake, what did you what did you think? Because this is the first time you've heard that, right? Yeah. What did you think as you're listening to it? I know that there are people I like I know that there are people in my life that have listened to the faithful mirror image of this talk track and geared up and got themselves all psyched up cold shower kind of thing. And then, had a conversation with me that conversation fucking sucked. So like I, <laughs> I, mean, I when, when you were a believer that people would engage no. you on stuff? No, 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 no. When I was being now being an atheist and, uh-huh. and a non-faithful person, they, I'm sure that they went and got themselves all psyched up for this conversation that they had with me to bring me back and back into the church. Yeah. Right. And then, and then look for just a tiny opening of uncertainty and exploit it and try and, you know, drive that drive a wedge into their psyche because, yeah. Uh, because you 're scoring this rhetorical point so that you know you can you can generate this doubt, and so just just approach i feel like this type of thing creates dialogue and creates like rhetorical exchange that is zero sum it 's like a zero sum game like if you give up certainty, then I have won in some way <laughs> yeah. and so, so basically. <laughs> preemptively when I had these conversations with faithful people trying to bring me back that were using the same type of technique, I would be overly um, resistant to that. Cause I could see what they were trying to do. Yeah. I could, it was totally transparent. That's the thing is he's, he's, he's presenting it in this way that like, you know, I I'm playing four dimensional chess, man. This guy has no <laughs> idea what I'm doing. It's totally, totally transparent. I mean, yeah. it's like, it's so obvious what he's trying to do. And it doesn't feel, it's not genuine. It doesn't. And the thing is when you go back to like Jonathan Haidt and all in like the work that he does about the elephant and the writer, like the thing that is the most, this this guy just keeps trying to shoot arrows at the writer and knock him off the elephant. Yeah. And it's like move the, like the, the the thing that's going to change, you know, you know what change, you know what, like, the flip that's the switch that flipped with, um, the gay movement is like gay people started coming out and then it was like, Oh shit, I know gay people. Mm. And I didn't realize that this guy was gay that I knew for a long time. Maybe they're not so bad because they had, they had created those relationships. And then it became clear that like, Oh, this is a, uh, Oh this is this is something that isn't scary because I have an interpersonal connection to this other person yeah. and it's the it's the emotional connection that you're making with the person and not the intellectual exchange that's actually changing their viewpoint. And so yeah. this is all just so I don't I hate this. Yeah, <laughs> I, <laughs> I <hate it. laughs> Yeah.
2: That's why I say I'm a force for good because I want to be that non-confrontational atheist friend that anybody can be friends with and be like, Oh yeah, I know an atheist. Not all atheists are out there to deconvert me. The, the conundrum with this is like, I am a fan of critical thinking. I'm a fan of inquiry and wonder and always questioning. And I enjoy being in that place now that I'm outside of the church where I can accept people as they are and they don't have to believe what I believe. And I don't have to try to talk them out of, their beliefs or non-beliefs, you know, it's just kind of this, we are who we are and let's all get along, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I don't like making camps of ideology. And I think this is a huge, huge atheism is so scary to believers because uh, a lot of atheists are so in your face and there's this whole community online of Christians and atheists and they're always uh, fighting it out. But um Yeah. I just want to be normal and get along. I mean, yeah. Everyone should get along.
4: Tagging on to, to both of those thoughts from, from Jake Andalini. Um, I, I think that's my problem is this feels so forced, right? Like you're literally going into the conversation with the intent of changing what someone believes instead of just really like wanting to understand someone first, right. And yeah. getting to know them first. Right. And, um,
0: I was going to say something more as well. Oh, yeah. When, when you've already diagnosed people as being sick with the faith virus. Oh you know. yeah. Well, honestly,
4: like when it comes down to it, it, it really is about being, being who you are and being open about it too, though. Right. Like Jake, I loved how you pointed that out about the the shift with the LGBT community and love loud and, and just how there's been such a shift so quickly, but that's because these people were extremely vulnerable And coming out in something that was really scary to them, right? And so for someone that was religious and now has become atheist, instead of proselytizing atheism as its own belief system, essentially, just live a good life and be open about the fact that you aren't Mormon anymore, you aren't from a different religion anymore. And then the people that have it come up in their lives, they're those golden contacts, right? Right. The golden contacts will know they can reach out to you for, as a safe place, right? Rather than feeling threatened, like you're coming at them and they won't even want to come talk to you if they're questioning and having doubts. And so I think if if you look at it from the golden contacts, like I served in Chile, so there were more, a lot of baptisms down there, but almost none of the people that got baptized that I baptized are still active in the church, Right. But there were a couple golden people that are still going to church because the church was something that really added value to their life. It was the right time, the right place, the right everything. So I I just think forcing it isn't the right approach to beliefs in general. And I think it should be something that comes up naturally and comes from a place of love and friendship and care.
0: So how how would you respond if you were at the gym like Boghossian was and you start have it like the the reason that they started talking is because Bogosian had this MMA shirt on and so the guy asked him about MMA um and and they started talking you know uh, yeah. about that um and then 10 minutes into the conversation is when he drops the you know I want to tell you about how Jesus has touched my life kind of thing so uh, have have you ever been in situations like that where you're you're meeting somebody and they kind of come they bring it up to you. Like, how do you respond to something like that? Uh, How, how should you, I mean, obviously with, with this is kind of his thing He's like, Oh great. Here's an opportunity for me to put my street epistemology into practice. But you know, what, what, what would you suggest that you do in a situation like that?
4: I think, and that's the thing, like having tools like this is not a bad idea for that type of situation. Um, and I don't even feel like that's proselytizing it either. Cause they're the ones that brought it up and yeah. it starts a conversation. And I personally like to talk a lot about religion. Like I have a, I have a whole lot of viewpoints on religion, right? Yeah. Um, and so I love conversations surrounding religion and belief and everything. And sometimes I don't agree with people. Sometimes I do. Right. But I think ultimately it comes down to just listening to them and then sharing your real thoughts. Right. Um sharing my experience in, in that situation, I would share my personal experience about having believed and then leaving and figuring out what that was like, right? And having to reanalyze my feelings and emotions. So I think doing a little more storytelling in that way and making it more personal. I, I've that that would be my approach. Um it, yeah. More true to me,
0: I guess, than following a list. Yeah. A checklist. I, I think when, when things happen to me like that, I just kind of write them off. <laughs> it's just kind of like, all right, this is somebody I'm not going to have a relationship with. <laughs> I, I, this, this is, uh, I don't think I've really ever talked about this, but, but, um, this last January, um, you know, like it's new year's. So you make resolutions and you always want to lose weight, right? Um, I, and, and I'm like, I always say I want to lose weight. I never actually lose weight. I'm going to do something different this time. Uh, last year I started listening to the Russell brand audiobook about addiction and I was totally digging it. And I'm like, oh, I wonder if there's like a food addicts, anonymous group that I could go to. That's, that's a good new year's thing. So I I found one, I went to it. It was this small group. There was like four or five people there. And they were all really happy to ha- to to see me to have me there, and afterwards this guy comes up and he starts talking with me, and it I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was something very similar to the 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 way that Jesus has influenced his life, and I kind of something just went right. Yeah, I'm not coming back. I'm not I'm not gonna I'm I'm not gonna be able to be friends with this guy. I'm not, like this group doesn't really have anything for me. I'm not a food addict. You know, I, just, <laughs> I, I like and I, you know, uh, yeah. I like that the guy. What's his name? Bagosian. Bagosian. Yeah. So so like I mean, Amelia Bedelia, hojin Bagosian. hojin Bagosian. That's how I remember it.
5: Hosen
2: Bagosian. Hosen an- Bagosian. A book last night.
0: Oh, you read you read Amelia Bedelia last yeah. night. Oh, awesome. Yeah,
2: she went camping.
0: Cool. Amelia goes camping. <laughs> <laughs> she did great. She, did...
2: <laughs> she ruined it.
0: Uh, yeah. All right. So, no no i love dude amelia Bedelia. She
2: i gotta
0: I, I, I have a little kid so like i should get those yeah she just
2: threw it he's like you need to pitch the tent mr rogers and she just oh right
0: because her yeah. thing is like she gets too literal about things
2: yeah she she's too literal and she ruins everything <laughs> it's hilarious
0: she is hilarious i remember one about like a flagpole like like uh the dawn's early light she always wondered what a Donzer was and why it gave Lee light anyway that, that, that's <laughs> my amelia Bedelia memory from when i was a kid
1: but you were, you were going to say something about ocean bago ocean
0: bago like i like that he was like i never saw that guy again maybe he right. stopped going to the gym because right yeah, that's what i thought too in <laughs> like maybe that's why he didn't come back but he didn't seem that didn't seem to like yeah. process mind. Yeah. And I and I like I, I'm really skeptical as I listen to these stories and he's he's giving his analysis as to what happened, you know, especially when he's like, bingo, jackpot. You know, it's like I got him to say, I don't know. And I, I'm like, well, maybe that doesn't mean exactly what you think it means. You know, it could be that he just recognized, oh, this is a dead end. I'm not going to engage in this anymore. So just kind of like, eh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I'm not going to talk about this anymore. Instead of just like, I question everything. Now my certainty (laughs) is gone. (laughs) I am doctastically open. That's amazing that that's, and he, he, he chose to put that example in the book. That's what I think is funny is because it's not actually evidence of anything. He has no idea what the guy was actually thinking. He never got like a, the rest of the story, Right. We don't know anything about what actually happened. Yeah. I, I, I like that he you know, he uses several examples just as a way of illustrating the five steps, you know. But but it it is telling when he goes, Let me give you an example of a successful uh, whatever treatment. <laughs> when I applied a successful treatment, it's it's a little confirmation biasy. I
5: think it kind of occurs to me that, that his interactions with people in this situation are almost like a novelty like I wonder what his social circle is like does he yeah. have people of faith in his family or in his social circle and my gut says no that when he has these experiences it's a novelty and he's like "Ooh, I get to try this thing that I don't mm. usually get to talk about whereas probably for us it's the reverse like everybody we know and interact with is like this person. So we're going to have a, it would be exhausting to do this
0: (laughs) all the time with every single person that expresses that they're infected with the faith virus.
2: It's true. I think that's the thing for me. It's totally overwhelming because I left the church and you're like, Oh my gosh, I got to tell everybody about all these things I learned and, and Smith's a creep, And he actually was, you know, tried for, The treasure digging thing, you know, like you learn all these facts and you're like, ah, no one knows this. And you want to tell the world, and then you realize that's kind of impossible. And even if you do tell them stuff, they don't care and they still want to believe. And so you're like, okay, I won't deconvert everybody from Mormonism. And then you're like, but what about Christianity? And then the bubble gets bigger. You're like, I got to tell everybody that.
0: Right, and then it you start a like, podcast, yeah. and <laughs> you're, like talking about, it and then, exactly. and then you flip, and you go like, "Oh no, like, no, never
2: I mean, mind, never mind, just never mind." More thing, it's <laughs> a lot easier that way.
0: Yeah. <laughs> is well. And, 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 and inter- interestingly enough, Peter, the, this next clip is from somebody who he, he calls a family friend, um, and th- this is a woman that he's been having discussions like this with for five years, and he calls this a failure. Um, so let's, let's jump into this
3: next clip here. Intervention two, unsuccessful. The following is a conversation I had on the morning of July 16, 2012, with a friend of the family. I've been engaging her on the topic of faith for more than five years, but to no avail. So tell me, in one sentence, why, after all of our conversations, do you still retain your faith? You don't have to answer now. You can tell me later.
4: Okay, let me think about it.
3: (laughs) Okay, what's your answer?
4: (laughs) Because it gives me comfort. It's
0: ingrained in me.
3: This is the hypothesis. It gives me comfort. It's ingrained in me. It's what's targeted for refutation in the Olympus. A little humor, if it's sincere and well met, goes a long way to cementing the therapeutic alliance. Humor is an incredibly effective and underused dialectical technique, probably underused because there's so many ways it can backfire. But when successful, almost nothing is more effective in advancing rapport. Do you think slave owners were granted comfort knowing that they'd have others to till fields for them? An admittedly over-the-top counterexample, but in the context of our relationship, it was appropriate.
4: Oh, Peter, those two things aren't alike at all.
3: You're right. But my point is that not all things that give you comfort are morally good, or even good for you, Right. Like the homeless alcoholic near the underpass who clings to his bottle, my immediate goal was obvious—to get her to acknowledge that not all things that give one comfort are good. I want
0: to—I want to pause
3: this just for
0: a minute because uh, I, I'm curious if that's even a, an effective rebuttal in the Olympus. If you know, because his question is why? Why haven't I been able to? make a dent in your faith after all these conversations and her response is because it gives me comfort. And then he's like, well, but not everything that gives you comfort is good. Right. To, to, to me, it, that that's not like a good response either because he's, he's dismissing this, this particular thing that that does give her comfort and he's saying, well, but that doesn't mean that it's good just because it gives you comfort. Right. I, I,
4: well, yeah, it moves away from actually listening, and he's really just implanting his idea out there. I, I personally hate, just from having knocked doors for way too many years of my life, I hate the questions, the super salesy questions that it's like, well, you don't believe, you don't feel that this is good. It's... You would want to protect your children, right? It's like these super set up terrible questions that really just make someone feel stupid and they and they won't like you after you do that to them. So no wonder this is a failure. I think he's he, honestly I think he set himself up for failure right out the gates and just not caring at all what that comfort is like, right? Yeah. How does that comfort you? What? How, why? Tell me first, right? Right. You, yeah. yeah. Convince yeah. me to be a Christian first before I start saying, do you know what? It just doesn't work for me because of this, this, and this.
3: And, and,
0: because and it shouldn't fun. work for you. It shouldn't give like, just because it's comfort doesn't mean that it's good. So you're being comforted by something that's bad. You know, it's just such a, such a leap and it doesn't, I don't think that it really did reset the, the conversation to wonder. I, I think something that you're suggesting Brady would do a better job of that. Like, to, um, you know, tell me, tell me more, like, how does it give you wonder or not wonder, but give you, give you comfort or something like that. Um, anybody, anybody see that as like a, a
5: good or effective, if he's really tr- truly transcribing this, the way it happened, he's not seeing that already she's throwing things out there where she's trying to get out of the conversation. Yeah. Right. She's clearly feeling attacked already, but he's not, he's not seeing it or clicking in.
0: Yeah. That's what makes me think that this guy has like a social disorder. (laughs) Like I'm serious. He seems like a person that like, is like this really, I bet he sees himself as like this, this evangelist of atheism and this, like this, this warrior in the, in, in the, (laughs) This 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 soldier in the war of the minds of men, and
5: everybody else sees him as just an annoying asshole. Yeah, right. Sociopath. Like, <laughs> I think the the narration probably reinforces that more than just reading the book. But he sounds like a sociopath.
0: Mm. And you know what? And I'm and I actually think the narration is a huge. I, I was for a while. I was like, well, let's you know take the voice narration out of it. Let's just talk. Let's just focus on the text. But you know, if that's, I, I think it's relevant. Yeah, I, I think the, it is of too. the voice is relevant, and I feel like the delivery. There's a lot of communication, you know, non-textual yeah. communication that's, that's going on, and he just—he really does seem like somebody that has a social disorder. Well, and and you miss some of the clips from from uh, previous episodes where he is very militant, and he and he's like, "Gone are the days when atheists are looked at as these wimpy effete professors with patches on their shoulders. Wow, we're kicking ass." Right and left, you know, I mean, he really, he really did bring up this militant kind of badassery. This guy owns swords. This guy owns multiple (laughs) swords. He's (laughs) kind of Dwight schrute isn't he? He's kind of like Dwight Schrute. What
4: is my perfect crime? I break into Tiffany's in midnight. Do I go for the vault? No, I go for the chandelier. It's priceless. As I'm taking it down, a woman catches me. She tells me to stop. It's her father's business. She's Tiffany. I say no. We make love all night. In the morning, the cops come and I escape in one of their uniforms. I tell her to meet me in
1: Mexico, but I go to Canada. I don't trust her. Besides, I like the cold. 30 years later, I get a postcard. I have a son, and he's the chief of police. This is where the
4: story gets interesting. I tell Tiffany to meet me in Paris by the Trocadero. She's been waiting for me all these years. She's never taken another lover. I don't care. I don't show up. I go
0: to Berlin. That's where I stashed the chandelier.
3: Worst jammed in movie parody ever.
0: Like if Dwight Schrute were an an atheist, this would be Dwight Schrute. At
2: the beginning of chapter three, too, uh, one of the quotes of the headline is himself.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. He quotes himself a lot. Yeah. Yeah.
2: He says, change minds and hearts will follow. Peter Bogosian.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's, let's go back and see how... how Did anyone uh, else have a
4: GA name? Like their GA name, mine was B. or yeah, B William Bloom instead of Brady W. Bloom. I didn't think that would be a good GA name. Oh, I'm, the really? do that. I'm a woman. Yeah. Oh, delight. And I feel like that's that kind of thing where you're like, I have this great idea. You write it down and then you're like, yes, I'm signing it. Like this is a quote by me, right? Yeah. Important or
5: something. B. William Bloom. Bro- <laughs>
0: Okay. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. D. D. Glenn Ostland, the second was mine and oh. is mine. And when, when, like the very first time I ventured onto the internet with any kind of a project was in probably 1996 or seven, I started D. Glenn Ostland, the second's, uh, Mormon folklore website. Which I, which I ran for Sure, it was a hit, man. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it was all right. It was, all right. it was okay. It was okay. <laughs> I mean, it, it wasn't Dumb and Dumber or Winnie the Pooh, but it was my little
3: taste of, you know, feeling I again used a rather extreme example in the hope this would increase the likelihood she'd accept my counterexample, thus undermining the hypothesis.
2: I'm not harming anyone, I'm not one of these people who pushes my beliefs on others.
3: Do you think you're harming yourself? Do you think that using a bad way of reasoning, a way of reasoning that takes one away from reality, is a form of injustice toward yourself?
5: What do you mean? I
3: mean, do you think having a belief because it's comfortable and not because it's true is a form of harm to yourself?
5: I never said it wasn't true.
3: She might not have explicitly stated that her faith beliefs weren't true, but if she believed they were true, then in response to, why, after all of our conversations, do you still retain your faith, she would have said, because it's true. Because this was not her first response, my suspicion was that her verbal behavior didn't align with her beliefs. Are there beliefs in your faith true?
2: I don't know, Peter? They make me
4: feel good, and you seem to want to take that away from me.
3: I knew she wouldn't claim her faith beliefs were true, only because we've had similar discussions before. I never allow people to steer these discussions from faith is true to faith is beneficial, comforting, unless they explicitly acknowledge that faith is not a reliable guide to reality. In this case, however, I was targeting... It gives me comfort for refutation, as I genuinely do think she receives comfort from her faith. I don't want to take away your comfort. I just don't understand how much you could be comforted by something you know isn't true. Did you ever watch professional wrestling with Vince McMahon? Hang on a second. It, it, I, yeah, just like, it's
0: hard to not parse out things that he says. Like, I don't understand how you could get comfort from something that you know isn't true. Like, she just said I didn't say that it wasn't true.
4: Yeah, so if, I, I put, if I put myself in her shoes, so many times at this point, I'm going to be like, dude, shut up. Leave right. Me alone. You've done this so many times. Just leave me alone. I don't care. Like, over and over, he's asking these questions that I feel like would entrench her in this defensive place and and a defensive stance. Right. I'm going to, I have to defend what I believe immediately. And it's from the start of the conversation, it's clear that that is their relationship. Yeah. So yeah, I don't think he's doing a very good job. Maybe that's why this is the failure example. Still don't know if it's the best example to be giving, like with these questions in the book itself. Yeah. Like it seems like it should be a little more thought out and actual have, does it have actual lists of good questions to use other things like that? Like actual technical tools that, that you have,
0: what, what he's, what he's, what he's going is through just right these now. Examples? It's just these examples. No, though? he, I mean, he, 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 do, he, do, he does, he does kind of like that clip that we listened to where he spells out the Socratic method. He does some things like avoid these kinds of questions, ask these kinds of questions, you know, so some do's and don'ts. I, I don't know if it's really like a checklist, yeah but but yeah he does some things like that.
4: Yeah, I I just feel like these conversations don't feel very vetted. Mm. They don't feel like they're the best approaches or the best questions that could have been asked to actually help someone make a change in in the way they think.
0: Yeah. This whole thing is him reading into things in a yeah. way that I I wouldn't necessarily read into them. Like he's reading into, Oh, well, well, she really thought they were true. She would have, she would have said they were true at the beginning instead of it brings me comfort. No, she may have invoked. It brings me comfort with the subtext of, if you attack this, you're actually hurting me. Yeah. Yeah. And he's so like, he basically, this is an emotional plea from her of saying like, please have some sort of emotional awareness and don't bother me about this. Yeah, and again, again, like you have over the past five years. Exactly. Stop. Yeah. Like, yeah. like, stop. And it's just uh, <laughs> this, this guy. he's told Dwight Schrute. <laughs> he, <is, laughs> he is. Yeah. He's yeah. he's in a black trench coat in front of a <laughs> table of samurai swords <laughs> with a fedora, and he's like. Yeah. I'm stopping, (laughs) I'm freeing people from, I'm stopping the plague. Like this guy. Oh my God. Let
2: alone moves the wheels of history.
3: Yes. (laughs) Yes.
0: All right. right, There's a little bit more on this
3: clip. Now I'm setting the stage for the counterexample. I'm attempting to undermine the hypothesis. Faith gives her comfort. I also wanted to bring more levity into the conversation in the hope that this would act to lubricate the discussion and make her beliefs more likely to become unstuck.
4: No, but my husband used to.
3: Well, maybe you can explain something to me. I've never understood how people can root for a wrestler when they know the outcome is rigged. When you know who's going to win, you know the match is fixed. I just don't get rooting for someone in that context. It makes people feel good. Yeah, that's what I don't get. How so? Because people want someone they like to win. I guess that's kind of like faith. You know it's false, but you subscribe to it anyway because it makes you feel good. I inserted the word false here, hoping she would resign herself and accept that her faith beliefs are actually false. I wanted her to wonder, should one subscribe to a belief because it makes one feel good? What if I told you that you could feel good because of something that actually worked? Something that was real. Reason makes you feel good. Ooh, and again, like he's
0: ignoring that she's saying that this does work for me. Right? What what if I could tell you that you could feel comfort with something that actually works? As opposed to what you're doing, right? I, I yeah. can attest that almost
4: everything he said in this conversation, from a sales standpoint, it does not build a good like long-term relationship with a customer. Right? Yeah, um, This is like strong-arming, you're trying to get the sale as fast as possible techniques in, mm-hmm. in the sales world. So I, I don't think he's coming from the right place in, in this one at all.
5: Yeah. One of the ways you can tell he's sort of losing the thread is he starts to say you a lot. He starts to talk in the second person. When when you talk in the second person, often what's happening is you're trying to you're trying to get validation for your own beliefs. It's not I get happiness or I get satisfaction or I get comfort from from reason is the example he uses. He's saying you would get reason. And it sounds like he's saying I need you to see things the same way I do in order to validate my feeling this way Mm. i can't just feel these things on my own you have to as well or it calls into question the things i do and and sort of the the analogy in my experiences is any kind of discussions here on testimony meetings people will get up and say you know when this happens and this happens this happens we feel good because they desperately need other people to believe the same things or they get that cognitive dissonance Mm you feel this or you feel that. And this is where he really starts to lose the thread.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Bringing up up. that
4: cognitive dissonance too. A thought that I had earlier in our discussion was I think a better goal for this book, rather than making like militant, like proselytizing atheists, a a better goal would be to help people want everyone to feel comfortable in cognitive dissonance. Like if we can all feel comfortable feeling uncomfortable We'd be a lot kinder to everyone around us. Well,
0: Brady, that's the book that you're going to write. Ah, yes. That's the book that you're going to write.
4: The... the Manual for creating deists, right? and yeah. <laughs> Randy, you'll <will>
0: have to. <laughs> Not deists, but um, just a, a, a manual for creating people who are comfortable with cognitive dissonance. <laughs> that exactly.
4: just rolls right great. off the tongue. New York Times bestseller, yeah, yeah. Absolutely.
3: Reason makes you feel good. It makes me feel better than eating bacon. It makes me feel awesome to know that I can solve problems based on something real. What would it take for you to open yourself up to that gift? Here, I use specific language from the cult exiting literature. There's a body of research that analyzed factors influencing why people had fallen prey to cults. The phrase, open yourself up, and the word, gift, are frequently used to indoctrinate people into faith systems. These terms may also be effective in nudging people toward embracing reason.
0: I'm just fine the way I am.
3: It appears the intervention was not effective. However, one can never really be sure what long-term effect a treatment will have. I will continue to engage her on the subject of faith and will continue to try to help her by experimenting with different dialectical strategies. I remain hopeful she will eventually abandon her faith.
0: Oh, I'm sure she's really looking forward to it too. <laughs> no way for Thanksgiving. Yeah. Fine. Beet seeds, protein bars, NASA blankets. Yeah. I hope he, I hope he like autographed uh, the copy of the book that he gave to her, like wrote a little forward, like <laughs> right. until you lose your faith. Yeah. I wrote this book and immediately. So of you.
4: I do have one, one question that I want to put out there. Um, is how do you guys feel about reaching out and being persistent with people that you really care about and actually like facilitating and starting these conversations, not in the same way that this guy does maybe right. And in the way that you would do it to actually connect more. Um, But is that the wrong approach or maybe wrong is the wrong word to use, but what do you think of an approach like
0: that? You said, you qualified it by saying people that you really care about. So if it's somebody that you really care about, it means you listen to what they are saying with much more acceptance than what Hojin Bagoshin is doing here. Right. Because so, she, but but she is there some says, validity to this though? Like, no.
1: Like, no, should we should no.
0: we engage more often to
4: have help people to question their beliefs? Should we be a little bit more not necessarily missionary-like, but like every member of missionary
0: kind of people, right? Like, Not, I, I don't, I don't think this is the way to do it. When when the signs are so clear that she's saying, "I'm fine, I'm right? Fine. I'm fine the way that I am. I don't need you to apply your tr- your little treatments to me to try and cure me of my virus of faith. I don't need that from you, Peter. You know, so." if, if he's just, um, being her friend and when things like this come up, he's like, well, this is how I see it. This is, and and he's very stalwart in expressing what he believes and why he believes it, what, how he sees the world and why he sees it. I think yes. that's, that's very different. And I think that's the way to engage rather than how, how come you haven't changed your mind in five years that we've been doing this? What, how, what am I not doing right here? <laughs> Like,
4: or or what's wrong with you? His approach with her is, is very ineffective. Yeah. Uh, I have to admit that. Yeah. Uh, Like, should we be sharing more? Should we be talking about it more? Should we be like, not as scared to post pictures of ourselves when we're out with friends or because I still hide pictures. I still won't post things that that are a part of my life now because I know how people will judge me. Right. And then am I living my life just according to their judgments? I should be more open and, and maybe be a little bit more missionary-like in that way about talking to people and helping them see how things could be better.
0: Maybe, but, like, I, but you might be being too hard on yourself too, you know, like saying I should do this differently or I should do this, but I, I think it's two different questions. I, I, think, I, I think there's a difference between engaging people and trying to convert them to a way of thinking and just being true and genuine to who you are you know, uh, and, and so that, that's what I hear you saying is like, I'll go to parties, I'll have a drink in my hand and there's a picture of it and I won't put it on Facebook cause I don't want my mom to know that I drink, you know, or, or something like that, which I, I think is a different thing than going up to your mom and saying, why do you still believe all this stupid Mormon shit?
5: Yeah. Is there a more delicate way perhaps to sort of, as your litmus test to know when they're ready to have that conversation? So the, the three I know it's from Reddit, I think, the three big questions. If the thing you believe or that you're talking about wasn't true, would you want to know? And depending on their answer to that, you know whether you proceed further. And then it's if the thing you believe wasn't true, would you want to know? And if they say yes, you proceed to if the thing that you believe was true isn't true, what would you lose? And at any point, if they say no, it's like, all right, this is not the right time and back off. And that's what he's not doing. I'm going to claim some expertise on this because – Um,
0: I, I I don't know how many people were able to get a parent to leave the church (laughs) and I, and I don't know if my mom really gives me as much credit as I give myself for her leaving the church, but like both my mom and my sister, um, left the church after I did. And I, I did have an influence on what they did or or on, on, it was their choice. It it was their investigation. It was their reasons. Uh, Like I, I think that the way that I did it, it wasn't even as, um, direct Peter is what you were suggesting. Like, if this wasn't true, would you want to know? I I might have said something like that, but it it would just be like listening to what they have to say, maybe asking a couple of challenging questions and then just going, "Hmm, all right, something to think about, you know? And it took years. It took a long time, but I, I already had a relationship with them. Um, and I didn't want that to be jeopardized any more than it already was in certain situations for certain reasons that we don't need to really go into. But, um, <laughs> so I, I think it's that long suffering, uh, approach and I, like it didn't really, I didn't have any skin in the game uh, as to what choice they eventually made if they stayed in the church or if they left. So I wasn't trying to influence them one way or another, and I guess I also, because I was, was podcasting, I had an outlet for talking about the things that I wanted to talk about with the people that I wanted to talk about it with and then letting people who were interested in listening, listening to it and just kind of putting it out there in this more passive way where, you know, the, the stuff is out there. I've, I've shared as, as I've been going through different stages of whatever journey this is you know it 's out there, but it's it 's that direct approach to a certain person. how do you gauge their level of interest in changing their belief system i I think that 's a really hard a really hard question, and i don 't know that it 's really all that Im- important um, that we know if we're if we're you know we know where somebody 's at or not it 's just to uh, what one of you said earlier to to just let people know where you are. So if they ever want to know more about it, they can come and talk to you about it and they can, they can instigate it. I, I think that's my soapbox, but I do get the, like it's, I think having been through it and so much further on kind of the back end of the faith transition as you are Glenn. And I think I I am as well. And I I presume to know anything else about anybody else, but um I I can see where you're coming from, Brady. That it's like, you want to be, um, it's easy when you're over it or when you're, you're far enough past it to say like, Oh, you know, just be patient. Life is long. Um, you know, this, the things, you never know how things are going to work out. Just kind of play it cool. But, um, sometimes that's not, it doesn't really feel like that's like an, um, that's really an option emotionally. Well, and and Delaney, I got to say something. Yeah. And and Delaney may be in a better position to talk about something where the stakes are higher because of, of your, your husband's still a believer and is still active. And that, that that's a, a, a much different relationship than me with my mom and my sister. Um, And like what desires you have for where your husband is, and that sort of thing. I, th- I think being in those mixed faith marriages is a diff- is a more difficult position to be in. I don't, I don't know if that's what you were thinking of, Jake. But there they are certainly more yeah, exactly. They're, they're different. Like it's easy my for us to say one size fits all for everybody. Right. And it's easy for us to say like, oh, you know, just be cool, man and just yeah. just hang out and things will work out. But Delaney, what 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 are your what are your thoughts about this? Like is there is there a middle ground here?
2: Oh, it's hard cuz some at the beginning, I left the church in 2014 and at the beginning it was really hard because you just feel so like worlds apart, you know. Like in your mind and and it's like not only with church stuff, religion, but politics, we don't agree on a whole lot that that way either so um for me, for us, it's we just had to get to a place where we respected each other enough to do our own thing, and that's what works for us, but there's still a lot of times where um we don't agree and it, you know, we've talked about spiritual experiences or, or uh, faith and it just, it's not as easy as what he's prescribing here in this book. It's, it's not a matter of asking the right questions or,
1: uh,
2: I don't know, the pot, pa- the right.
0: Creating doxastic pauses. openness.
2: Yeah. Like <laughs> it's more muddy than that. And, and I think for me, if my goal was to eventually create an atheist, then I'm like what does that say about me as how accepting I am or or how willing I am to love this person despite what they believe. It's it's not about that. I guess I guess our whole mission either we're too stubborn to just call it quits and get a divorce or we're just like, no, we have more in common than what we believe in. And we focus on that and we try to still have a dialogue about stuff we don't agree with, even though it's hard. And I think that's, if I'm going to take anything of value from this book, it will be that, like how to have a more uh, wonderful discussion where it's like, you know, leaving room for "oh, hmm, that's interesting," and tell me more about that, and not. But you know, adding but but this happened, or how could you still believe this? Or
0: aren't you harming yourself by right having faith?
2: Right, or or on his end, but but don't you see this is important to me? Or um, you know, those kind of things where you you seek validation in your own belief from the other person. And you really just have to get to the point where you're accepting no matter what. And you're not, people will come to you and and these conversations will happen organically because you're not, you're, you're safe. You're a safe person to talk to And you could be that safe person even after leaving the church. Cause like I'll have friends and family that will complain to me about church stuff all the time because they know I'll be like, I know, I know it's, that I agree, that's stupid, or whatever. And but I'm not out there if I was the one pressing them on their faith or you know, confronting them about it, they wouldn't talk to me about their concerns or the latest lesson in relief society that made them want to bar for whatever, you know. So,
0: yeah. And we're not going to get into it tonight. I mean, we've got one more clip to hopefully get through and, and wrap it up at about 15 minutes or so. I don't, don't want to keep Jake up too late past midnight because we know what happens. There's, there's popping off involved, <laughs> but, uh, but, um, Next week, I really do want to get into this moral relativism thing. I, I haven't listened to that part in, in the book. I've, I started it, but I haven't finished it. But but I think that's that's moral relativism is the slippery slope um, of saying, "Oh, I'm just going to let people believe what they want to believe because if it works for them, it's okay," kind of thing. I, I think. It, that's the response to no, everyone should think this way. Everyone should be this. Everybody should rid themselves of the faith virus. I I, I think we'll get into that with the moral relativism stuff, but um, yeah. So, so this last, this last clip um, and I'll, I'll I'll try to refrain from pausing it just so we can get through it all. And then, and then talk, it, it, it might hit a little bit more close to home because he's talking with uh, a, a guy who's getting ready to go on a Mormon mission. Or, I, I'm sorry, on a Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints mission. Mm-hmm. And uh, so let's let's get into this one. That'll be what it does. Intervention
3: start. four. Immediate success. Immediate. The following intervention took place with a security guard at a university where I taught night classes. We made small talk a few times, but we never had a substantive conversation. He was a soft-spoken and kind young man. I liked him. One day, I overheard him telling someone about training for his upcoming missionary work. He was a Mormon, and evidently he was learning how to convert others. So what's your best line? I mean, what's the line you're going to use that will convince them? You can try it on me if you want. Maybe you'll convince me. (laughs) Ha! Okay. So look around you. How did this get here? This had to have a cause, right? All of this? The question... How did this get here? Is a statement of wonder. Stage one. The answer he gave to his own question was it had to have a cause. This is his hypothesis. In this example, he supplied both wonder and a hypothesis. I moved straight to the Olympus and gave him a counterexample. Well, what if it was always here? What do you mean? Well, You assume that nothing is the default. What if the default was something? In other words, what if there was always something stretching back into infinity? What do you mean? I wasn't sure if his question was a genuine glimpse of doxastic openness, or if he couldn't comprehend a universe that stretched back into infinity. King Follett discord. Accordingly, at this point I rephrased the question to convey openness and to reinforce the safe environment for our discussion. What do you mean, what do I mean? You assume the universe had to have a beginning. What if there was no beginning?
1: I never thought of that.
3: I was extremely surprised by this comment. He was about to try to convert others, and yet he had not even thought of the most basic objection to his worldview. I was also shocked. This point of doxastic openness came so early in the conversation. At this juncture, I wanted to make sure he didn't feel stupid, and I wanted to make sure I drove home stage 5, act accordingly. My goal was not just to help him to question his faith, but ultimately to detach him from the structure supporting and sustaining his faulty epistemology, the Mormon Church. Well, I think about this stuff a lot, so don't feel bad. Plus, this is what I do for a living. So, if it's possible that the universe always existed, what would that mean to you? I reset the conversation to wonder. I also wanted him to draw his own conclusion and perhaps even impose the method upon himself. In other words, he would use the same method of questioning upon himself that I'd been using on him. So I waited for him to see the opportunity to talk himself out of his beliefs. The obvious conclusion was that if the universe always existed, then God didn't create it. It's a short intellectual step from God not creating the universe to God not existing. But he didn't see that yet. I continued. I'm not sure. Well, let's think through this together. So the main argument for God was, look around you. How did this get here? but we know there's another possible explanation for what there is. So if the universe always existed, what would that mean? Here I use the word we to confer upon the subject the feeling that he is not alone, that we are equals, and that we as humans are all facing the same ultimate questions. I'm not sure. I would have normally taken more time with this process but I was already running late for class. Still, I had to seize the opportunity. In my rush, I made a mistake by leading the subject too much. It would have been better to give him more cognitive space to come to his own conclusions and thus increase the likelihood of a successful transition to stage 5. Act accordingly. This is because he would have been more likely to accept the conclusion if he arrived at it of his own accord as discussed earlier. Well, if the universe always existed, then it wasn't created. If it wasn't caused, what would that mean? That there's no God? I tried to hide my joy, show my approval, and acknowledge our success. Yep, that's what it would mean. He looked horrified and scared. Even though late for class, I proceeded to provide him with the resources he needed to escape from the Mormon Church. Specifically, I furnished him with contacts and resources he could use for support. I made sure to let him know he wasn't alone. I also specifically explained why it's crucial to not succumb to the just pray about it line that I was certain he'd be subject to once he started voicing doubts. Asking people to, quote, just pray about it, unquote, pushes them into a form of confirmation bias where the very act of prayer means they've already bought back into the system they just escaped. This was a successful intervention. It was successful because the conversation was brief and because he came to the conclusion on his own with minimal prodding. When I left him that night, he told me he was freaked out. I don't know if he ever completed stage five and left the church. I never saw him after that.
0: What are your immediate thoughts, Jake Frost? Um, You know, I like that one the most of all the interactions. Because it seemed like it was more, I don't know, it seemed more organic than like him because I cause the way that it was set up, it was the the security guard was asking the 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 guy the question. I don't I didn't really I didn't really follow exactly how they got in the thing, but it it it, it seemed more kind of organic and less know, in your face. Yeah, a little less in your face. It was just like a, just a conversation between two a couple of dudes that were you know talking about something that interested them. Do, like that. Do, do you consider it an immediate success? Uh. I I don't know. I mean, well, he doesn't know like, <laughs> well, that's what I he mean, call. I mean, he calls, he calls this an immediate success. He gave it an example of an immediate success. Right. So the, the, the success is because it is success to him. Just creating the dial. Doxastic, doxastic, doxastic openness. Doxastic yeah. Doxastic to, to, to get him to, to get him to say, I don't know. Yeah. To, to get him to, uh, on his own say oh so if the universe has always existed then that means there's no god you know just just to incept that thought just that act of inception that act of inception he saw as uh, an immediate that, that kid had
4: never read the doctrine and covenants. I don't think because right? he would have had a t- so many great replies to that
0: question. Yeah. That's oh, see, that's a, there's so much better apologetics than he was getting. <laughs> that, 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 was where I was really critical. And I'm like, that guy's not a very good Mormon. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> Poor kid. He never listened to He never heard the King Follett discourse. I mean, the, the, the fact that, the universe free. has been around forever. That's been considered in Mormonism before. That's not like a oh well then there must be no God kind of thing. Never saying if I could hide a collab, I don't think, man. Yeah.
2: Well, may somebody I had a hard time wrapping my head around why why if the universe always existed, it means that there is no God.
0: Because because God by definition is the creator of the universe. That's, that's one of the fundamental characteristics of God when he's using that word God. So if, so if he he says that God, or if the universe came first, it's a chicken and the egg thing. So then God couldn't have created the
2: universe. See, and that's the Mormon in me because I'm like, well, he was the child of another God. Like it it went on forever the other way too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 The, the, I mean, I and I don't, Brady, maybe you found the actual verse in scripture in the Doctrine and Covenants where it talks about it, but how matter is, what, what eternal, it wasn't created, it's just organized. What can be destroyed. Yeah. yeah, it can't be created or destroyed, it's just organized. And then in King Follett, he just talks about how there were these intelligences and these eternal intelligences that always were. And one of them just one day realized he was supreme. And then uh, I'm going to make all of them supreme. Uh, yeah. I don't think
4: he convinced any of us to not be Mormon anymore.
0: Yeah. Or
4: his
3: argument that, thing that thing the universe always existing
0: means there's no God. The, and, and that's what like, and maybe again, we're just, we're getting his misapplied interpretation of this exchange where the guy goes, Oh, are you trying to say that there would be no God? And that that was what the question was? Oh, and he looked horrified because maybe he looked horrified because you're stupid. That's not,
4: (laughs) I don't know. One thing that he said that bugged me was he said he put them on an equal playing ground. They were equals because he said we. But like right before he said we, he also said, well, I think about this a lot. And I actually do this for a living. He's like totally building himself up. And then he's like, but then I made us equals. And I was like, you're not making yourself an equal here, man. (laughs) So again, some of like the dialogue and the back and forth in this, I just think should be completely rewritten
0: well it also exposes that he doesn't really see himself as an equal with these people that he's talking to he he really has this condescending um approach to all of them as being infected with a virus that he's got a cure
4: yeah so i i i think that's that's the overall theme that's standing out to me yeah is i don't like his approach to this but i i see I see why people would be attracted to it. I see mm, yeah. maybe some value in it and good things that could come from something like this that maybe is just a little more thorough and and better.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah and the the weight of having a faith crisis while you're on a mission, you know, he just wants to free free this missionary from the Mormon church and he doesn't understand all the baggage that comes with that, with uh, questioning while you're on your mission, and and the social status the mission gives you, and and then what happens if you come home early, and then and then leaving the church when you come home, you know that's, it's a lot.
0: Yeah, I think the thing that I don't like the most about this, and and is that this is what I would. Uh, I I feel like this is actually the person that I would become if I gave, if I like allowed myself, like gave into all my worst impulses. Really? Really? (laughs) Yeah, because like, I feel the way about like, I feel as condescendingly about (laughs) believers (laughs) as this guy, as this guy does about like belief, like faith in general. Mm-hmm. And, and when I, when I, you know, I'll talk to more, you know, when I'm talking to Mormon friends and family and they're talking, you know, my, my in-laws were here, they were just here and they were, and they're um actually on a mission like in Raleigh. So they're like really wow. close by on like, wow. a mission. it all happened really fast. And they're talking about, you know, this new saints app that, you know, can has all this, like it has like the history in it and it has nice footnotes and it talks about all the history man and i'm like and the, the thing is as they're talking about it internally i'm going can you really believe this shit like this is complete this is the stupidest thing like i feel as condescending i feel as uh as much vitriol toward their belief as this guy feels toward other people's beliefs but like i know in the back of my mind that like it probably isn't a good thing for me to feel that way so I kind of rein it in, but this guy's like, no, that's the right. That's just go with it. Like if I just let that part of my psyche just loose, this is the person I would become. Yeah. So this is why I'm reacting so strongly against it. Interesting. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Me too. I, I really have to keep that in check. <laughs> I mean, that was my, my whole, um, uh, Essay was the atheist versus the humanist. It's like the atheist just wants to be like, ugh, like, yeah. Do you really believe this shit? But the human is the humanist in me is like, well, what common ground can we work together on? Can we build off of, and can we let some of this other stuff go? Right. Oh, yeah. It's hard.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, I think I think that's it for for tonight. Unless anybody has anything that they want to say in conclusion. Um, I, I think I think this will lead in very interestingly to a discussion about moral relativism because i I, I really think that, m- that the, the way that I try to combat what you guys are talking about because i I too feel a sense of condescension towards <laughs> people yeah. who believe stupid shit and yeah. and, and uh, but but then how do you still? respect them you know we've had those questions before going back years on the podcast. like what is respecting how do you, how do you still care about them how do you still value them and and so i i think it goes into a place of moral relativism where you kind of have to be like oh well just that's just a different way of seeing the world and it's equally valid or for them kind of thing and then what do you do with that because that's not really how you feel it's just it's a tactic that you're employing to try to save face and be friendly instead of yeah, burning these bridges but yeah so i I think that'll be the the main focus of next week that's that's okay because because i I, in a way i see like what this guy is doing is like refusing to cop out when most of us just say "Eh, we're not going to change that that's not going you know and and we just give up and we kind of cop out and he doesn't, he's like, no, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm doubling down. I'm going to, I'm going to root out this, this virus. Um, and I guess there's something, there's something like, I mean, perversely, I kind of respect what, you know, that, that commitment to the craft of like what he wants to do, but. I also just, he just doesn't sound like anybody I would like to know. No, right? because would, the would condescension you know virus person? is way worse than the faith virus to me. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: right. Yeah. And, and, I, and I've been infected by both. So I know <laughs> exactly. They are. I, and it's like, I don't, I don't want the condescension virus as a part of my life anymore. And it was these yes. things that sustained it for as long as it did. And it's enough to try to rid myself of it. Now <laughs> it's just right. path to go down. It's just this cloud of like cynicism and negativity that you're always carrying around with you. And it's, yeah. Anyway, we aren't those kind of atheists. No, we're, we're way better than those atheists. You know those <laughs> atheists? They're the worst. They suck. We're yeah. way better than them. Worst atheists ever. You yeah. know what? We should have a manual for creating uh, <laughs> better atheists. Who's better atheists, yeah. It's <laughs> like when you run into an asshole atheist. Yeah. See, the, problem, you, is, you the problem, problem. problem is it's a good idea, but then you'd actually have to write it and put in examples that probably aren't the best examples just to fill up space and go, <laughs> I did it. Publish
1: <laughs> it. Like. Yeah. And then we'll all look like assholes. Pretty bird, pretty bird. Hey, this is Billy in 4C from Rhode Island. Yes, that's right. The blind kid from Dumb and Dumber, and now Dumb and Dumber 2, too. Yes, a pseudo-celebrity Mormon. Infants on Thrones has helped me come to grips with the tragedy that I've seen, well, heard about at least, when learning that the thing that mattered most to me ended up being dead all along. I mean, Petey didn't even have a head. If you heart the show as much as I do, please leave a five-star review on iTunes. Write a short review, and oh my heck, why not post about it on the social media? Unless you're still stuck in the Relief Society closet about your faith transition stuff like I am. And always remember, I just thought he was real quiet.